Well, good morning, Parkview. My name is Doug, one of your pastors, and it's a joy for me to be here with you this morning and to be able to open God's Word. Um, you may have noticed that we are entering into a new series that will kind of carry us throughout the majority of the summer. Um, this series, if you remember, before Easter as a church, we spent some time in the book of Deuteronomy. We spent um, some time for a couple of months going through the first section. Deuteronomy is broken up into sort of three main chunks, and we spent the first couple of, of uh, months together in Deuteronomy 1 through 4. And now we're going to enter into a much larger section, the second section of Deuteronomy, which is the, the majority of the book. And, in, and rather than sort of preaching through every single section and every single verse, um, of this section of Deuteronomy. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to use this as sort of an opportunity to preach a series on the Ten Commandments. And so the series is called Words to Live By. And really what my, my job is for us this morning, my job this morning is to help you understand that the Ten Commandments uh, basically be able to answer this question, why in the world would we be spending time studying as a church the Ten Commandments? My hope is if right now you're scratching your head thinking, why the Ten Commandments? By the time you leave here this morning, you'll have an answer to that question. If you don't, I apologize, but that's my job, okay? So I would invite you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to go ahead and open it up to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, and I'm going to, to launch us into this series, just read the first, uh, first six verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so I know you just sat down, got super comfortable, I'm sure, but uh, if you're able to stand, I would invite you to stand as we read God's word together. I'll read it, and then uh, I'll pray for us, and then you can, you can grab a seat. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord your God made a covenant with us in Oreb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Parkview Church, this is the word of the Lord. These words are faithful and true. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, as we come together as your people around your word, Lord, our prayer is simple. Would you use your word to shape us as your people? Lord, might you compel us with your word this morning to follow you, the one true God, and Lord, as I speak now, I pray that I would speak your words, not mine. Lord, we recognize that your spirit, your presence is in this place. Would you reveal yourself now to us through your word? We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can grab a seat. 
Well, one of my um, favorite stores in town to me and my wife to go to when we have just a few moments together is a, is a store downtown called Artifacts. I don't know if you've been to Artifacts, but it's by far one of my favorite stores. It's an antique shop, and apparently over the, the sort of the pandemic period, they expanded um, and, and took on sort of a, a larger footprint. So recently, my wife and I went there. I think we hadn't been there since, um, since COVID had started. And we just found ourselves there on Friday, and we were walking through the store, and it's just a, a wonderful store where you can see all kinds of artifacts from the past, antique furniture, antique toys, antique tools. It, it, is, it is a place that you could just get absolutely lost in, okay? Just totally love it, love artifacts. There's even, my wife pointed out, there was a tube TV that was an artifact that was for sale. I, yes, a tube TV. Okay, it was, it was shocking as I went through the toy section and was able to see, okay, some of these toys were toys that I played with as a kid and starting to maybe think that I'm becoming maybe an artifact. I don't know. It was a terrifying thought. But um, anyways, I love the store. It's a, it's a wonderful store where you kind of get a glimpse into um, the past, into the history. And I think oftentimes when we approach the Ten Commandments, if you're like me, um, I think oftentimes we can approach the Ten Commandments like it is just that. A thing of the past. An artifact that existed way back then but does not have much significance or relevance or even meaning for how I live my life right here, right now, today. And my hope is, is that as I said before, as we leave here, we would see that that is absolutely not the case. That the Ten Commandments are not simply some artifact that exists from a long, long time ago, but rather they are words for us to live by right here, right now, today. Moses if you remember where we ended the story of Deuteronomy, is here with his people. His people are about to, God's people about to cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land. And Moses, their, their leader who, who led them out of slavery, who helped them in the, in the wilderness, who they got to see God do these amazing miracles through, is now with God's people and he is providing instruction for them on how they are to live once they enter the promised land. And so it's no surprise here that he starts off this section by reciting the Ten Commandments because he recognizes that these words are just that. They are words to live by. The Ten Commandments are one of the most famous sections in all of the Bible. They are returned to and referenced throughout the Bible time and time again. Today they stand for us even now as the most influential law code that was ever given throughout all of history. Moses and the Ten Commandments are represented in architectural features throughout the United States Supreme Court building. Indeed, they are known throughout the world. Yet for as significant as they are throughout human history and throughout our culture, the reality is that we are growing as a people increasingly ignorant of these Ten Commandments. In fact, today only 14% of Americans, 14% of Americans could even name what the Ten Commandments are. In the church, I would argue that the, the exact same thing is happening. That, that for centuries, the Ten Commandments were sort of the foundation of Christian education. 
One contemporary author points out that for centuries, basic Christian instruction was based ultimately on three things. The Apostles' Creed, Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. So when someone would ask you, how, how do you disciple somebody? How do you teach kids the Bible? How do you instruct a new believer? The historical answer always included a significant emphasis on the Ten Commandments. At Faith Academy, we use a catechism to teach God's law, on chat, to, get, to teach God's word to, to students at chapel every morning. And a, a, at least a quarter of that catechism is based on the Ten Commandments. The question is, as you sit here this morning, for you to consider is, could you recite the Ten Commandments? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. But just, just think about it. Could you recite? Do you know what the Ten Commandments are? J.I. Packer has a little, a little book on the Ten Commandments. And in his book on the Ten Commandments, he suggests, and again, don't raise your hand for this, please. That if you are over 40 years old, the likelihood of you being able to recite the Ten Commandments is pretty high. If you're over 40. For those who are younger than 40, odds are you struggle. Don't raise your hands, please. I don't want to know how old you are. <laughs> but just ask yourself, do you know the Ten Commandments? My point is simply this. In church right now, in our culture, the Ten Commandments are being treated as if they are some ancient artifact that have no significance for you and me today. And the reason why we're preaching on them is because that ain't true, okay? They are incredibly meaningful, just as they were given to God's people, and they are given to us. They are given to us because they are words to live by. So my primary claim, the thing I want to show you this morning in these six verses is that the the learning the Ten Commandments is absolutely useful for, useful for us today because obedience to God's law is the appropriate response to, to the discovery of God's grace. I'll say that one more time. Why should you commit to memorizing these Ten Commandments? Here's why. Because obedience to the law is the only appropriate response to the discovery of God's grace. I'm going to show you that here in the text in three different ways. The first thing we're going to look at this morning is the charge. The charge. And we'll see that in verses 1 and verse 1. Then we'll look at the context in verses 2 through 5. And then finally, we'll look at the catalyst in verse 6. So first, the charge. What are we to do with the law? If you have your Bibles open, look at verse 1. Three things are pointed out here that we are to do with the law. The first says, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. Moses summoned all of Israel to hear his sermon, to hear these words. Certainly within the community of Israel, there were people who had different roles or vocations. You think of Levites, for example, who would have given a, a good chunk of their time and attention uh, to God's work because of their role. They had more constraints on what they could and couldn't do. When it comes to vocation, different callings for different people. But, but here what we see is that Moses has summoned, the text says, all of Israel for the expressed purpose of hearing God's law. There are at least 23 references throughout the book of Deuteronomy to hearing the word of God. In chapter 5 alone, there are eight references to the, the need for God's people to be a people who hear God's word. 
This is important. It's also important to keep in mind that hearing from God is, is not seen as a burden or as a drag for these people. Rather, it was, in fact, a tremendous privilege that they got to come together and hear God's word. They got to hear the, the true living God speaking to them. In fact, the reality that they could do this with Yahweh, with their God, is what set them apart from all the other nations. The cultures around them gave their worship to idols who were unable to speak, but not God's people. God's people gave themselves to the worship of a God who speaks. As Francis Schaeffer says, we worship a God who is there and who is not silent. This is one of the defining features of the God of the Bible. He is a speaking God. And it's a joy, it's a privilege that we get to worship a God who doesn't hold himself back. But reveals himself to us through his word. And so it would make sense that because we have this tremendous privilege, a God who, who speaks, we should be a people who listen and who hear. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. What are we to do with God's law? What is the charge? The first aspect of the charge is that we should hear. We should hear what God has to say. He is speaking constantly to us through his word. Some of you are uh, join us on Tuesday morning. We have a Zoom prayer time that is across all three campuses. Anybody can come. The link is in your, in your weekly email. It's on the website. You can just click. It's from 7 o'clock to 7.30. And one of the things I just absolutely love about Tuesday is it is an ability to communicate and to facilitate our relationship with God. So we come together as God's people. We listen and we hear him. One of the things I do when I lead it is I just open up the Bible to one of the Psalms that I read daily and we just listen to what God has to say to us. And we can do that anytime. And then that facilitates our conversation with him. Folks, we have a God who speaks to us. We ought to be a people who listen and hear to him, hear him, from him, what he has to say. Next, we see that we are not just to hear, but we're also to learn. It says, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them. You shall learn them. You shall hear them, and you should also learn them. It's not just hearing for hearing's sake, but hearing God's word that we might learn from God. And this takes time. This takes devotion. It's, it's tempting to let the word come in one ear and simply go out another. But he doesn't want us to just hear for hearing's sake. He wants us to hear that we might learn from him. That we might learn from him. That we might apply our brains and think about what he, what the word is saying. That we might give ourselves to the diligent study of God's word. So that we might hear his word rightly. Because it's possible to hear his word and not make the correct application or, or understanding. So we need to hear, we need to think so that we might learn. It's one of the reasons why we don't say the only way that you can grow spiritually is just show up here on Sunday and just listen to a sermon be preached. Is it useful and is it necessary for the edification of the believers? Absolutely for our church. It's a priority for us. At the same time, it's a reason why Brother Pastor Thomas Hoke prepares discussion questions 
that align with the sermon each week so that as you leave here and meet in community, you do so around God's word and you give yourself towards thinking about what God has said and applying it to your life, that you might learn what God is saying. So we hear his word, we, we, we learn his word. Next, we see that we, we do all of this that we might obey his word. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. What God is not after is a bunch of heads on sticks walking around here, okay? He wants the transformation of actual lives. He wants our hearts beating in line with his heart. He wants our lives to be aligned with his life. It's not the first time that we've seen this expression in our study of Deuteronomy. Be careful to, pay close attention to. In chapter 4, verse 9, it says, pay close attention to all that you have seen. The great events of history, Moses instructs God's people not to forget what God has done. Be careful that you remember all that God has done. In chapter 4, verse 23, take care not to forget God's covenant with them. And here, take care to actually do what God says. It's not enough just to hear. He's not, he doesn't just want us to hear the words. He doesn't just want us to think rightly about the words. Rather, the proper effect of our hearing and learning God's word is that we become changed people in accord with his word. That it transforms our life. Because it's possible, and this is what is so terrifying, quite honestly. It is possible to, to hear God's word, to even be deeply moved by God's word. To have an emotional reaction to God's word. Maybe even here on a Sunday morning. And to not be changed. It's a possibility. And it's one that we should always, as God's people, guard against. You can go to the Bible. Some go to the Bible looking for an emotional reaction. Or maybe momentary inspiration. Perhaps even temporary relief. These are all good reasons to approach the Bible. They, they can all be necessary sort of effects that come from being in God's word. But ultimately, we go to the Bible as students who need to know how to live. We need to know how to live. And if you were to just step back and think of everything that's happening in our world today, this year, the past 12 months, it has many Christians scratching their head, asking the question, what am I supposed to do? How do I respond to issues like abuse? How do I think about abuse in the church? How do I respond to issues like, like racism and injustice and, and what I hear going on in the world, what I see or maybe even experience? How am I supposed to think through these things? How am I supposed to live we go as God's people to God's word. How do we face suffering? I mean, this whole past series, what we've been looking at is different slices of our life asking the question, simply, how do we live in light of who God is and what God has done? We go to the Bible because we want to live the life that God has called us to. And through his word, he reveals that. This is more than just an academic exercise. It's the type of learning, the type of listening that impacts and changes our life. So to summarize the first point real quick, what is the charge? The charge is simply, what is Moses charging God's people to do? Hear God's word, learn God's word, 
and live God's word. If you like alliteration, which I tend to, listen, learn, and live. What's the charge for you in God's word? Those three things. Listen to it. Immerse yourself in it. Learn it. Know it. Think about it. Discuss it. Apply it. And live it. Should be changed people as a result. That's the charge. Next, verses two to five. What is the context in which this charge is given? The context is simply this. A covenant relationship. You see it. In verses 2 through 5, after communicating the charge, how they ought to respond to the law, he next reminds them of the context in which they received the law and is that of a covenant relationship. Look at verses 2 through 5. And the Lord, our God, made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and did not go up into the mountain. So here in verses 2 to 5, Moses introduces the idea, not for the first time, but for the first time in these six verses, this concept of covenant. And the, the concept of covenant is one of the more important words, really, in all of Scripture. It serves as a sort of central theological theme that runs throughout the Bible. One New Testament scholar refers to the covenants that God makes with his people throughout the Bible as the backbone of the storyline of the Bible. They help to unfold, understanding these covenants, help to sort of unfold the biblical narrative so that we can get uh, an idea and make sense of what is happening. So... The idea of covenant is an important concept, especially to make sense of what Moses is doing here, what God is doing ultimately with his people. Just a quick definition. What is a covenant? It's simply this. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. A chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. A chosen relationship. Two parties choose the relationship, and in that relationship, they make promises to each other. The probably most immediate sort of context of a covenant that many of us would probably understand and get our minds around is that of a marriage. A marriage is a covenant between two individuals, a man and a woman, who, who covenant together, who make certain promises to one another in love that they will fulfill no matter what. It's the idea of a covenant. Most of us get that in, the, in, a, in a marriage context. Another good example of Faith Academy, we have what's called a parent covenant. And there's two parties. There's the school, Faith Academy, and then there is the parents. And we say, hey, we have a common interest. We have a common goal. We want to provide, we want your child to receive an outstanding Christ-centered education. And we're going to make that happen. And so there's certain ends of the agreement that we have to uphold. There are promises, commitments that we make as a school. Likewise, we want the parents to make certain promises or commitments. And in the context of that covenant relationship, that's ultimately what's happening. We're promising, we're choosing to enter into a relationship. And we're making promises to each other. Two things as we consider the covenant that God has made, there are two things to me that stand out in this text about God's covenant with his people. The first thing is this, is that his covenant for these people hearing these words on this day is relevant to them. It's relevant to them. The same covenant that God had initially established with Abraham, he would continue with Israel. 
That's why in Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through 10, when the Lord appears to Moses through the burning bush, he declares that he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He does this so that Moses and Israel would understand that his covenant with Israel stands in continuity with his covenant to Abraham. That they see themselves as a part of what God is ultimately doing throughout history, drawing a people to themselves. They play a role in God's eternal purposes. After referring to the covenant in verse 2, Moses says, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all here, us here, alive today. Another way of, it's, it's kind of tricky in the original Hebrew language. Another way of reading that would be able to say, you could also read, not only with our fathers, but also with us. So remember that as, as, as these people stand on the threshold of the promised land, these are not the people who were with Moses at Sinai. That was their forefathers. That generation had died in the wilderness. This is a new generation. And what Moses is telling them is not only with your fathers did that covenant apply, it was also applicable, it was also relevant for you this very day. What was promised to them is promised to you. The present generation, he's saying this to say that the present generation, and for that matter all future generations, was as much a partner of the covenant at Sinai as those who actually stood at the foot of the mountain. This covenant relationship was, was meant not to be a thing of the past, but it was meant for a people, it was not meant for just a people long ago, because God of the Bible is a God of today. And he is a God for the people of today. He is a constant contemporary to every succeeding generation. His covenant promises still stand. It's a relevant covenant. It's a relevant promise. What he's about to say that to them applies to them. Secondly, it's also, I just emphasize the, the relational aspect of this covenant. See, what sets a covenant apart from a contract is that promises which are made are made in the context of a relationship. So it is with God and his people. Promises and obligations can often be made and often are made between people with no relationship. Okay, for example, if my car breaks down, I go to a mechanic. Now, the mechanic I go to, I just so happen to have a relationship with because I've built one over time. But he's not obligated to provide me services just because of the relationship. Rather, we are in a a contractual agreement. I need you to replace my alternator. I need some money. We exchange what we need and we're good to go. We go on our way, right? It's not rooted ultimately in a relationship. What God chooses to do with us is not to contract out a people, right? This is how awesome God is. He could easily have done that. He could have. But he chose to enter into a covenant relationship with us. God chooses to enter into a, the superior, all-powerful, eternal God enters into a relationship with a fragile and forgetful and undeserving people. It's his choice. He chooses to do it. Look at verse 4. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. should be understood here metaphorically. The point is that Israel had experienced a powerful and a direct encounter with the one true living God. 
and as a result, they would be changed forever. It's so important to understand the basis of biblical ethics does not flow from some abstract duty in relation to impersonal, universal principles. Rather, it is a matter of personal address. Personal address by and personal response to a personal God who has a face, who has a voice, who has a heart. And he wants you to share it. It's because of the nature of this relationship that compels us not just to follow his law, and this is what, is, is what we see in the Bible as the pattern. It's not just that, that we follow his law, but if you were to just read this, the Psalms, you would not see just a casual reading of the Psalm. You would not see people who simply begrudgingly follow a speaking God. Rather, you would see Someone who delights in obeying God's word. The description we get in Psalm 1 is a person who delights in the law, who, who meditates on it day and night because he recognizes that these are words that he needs just to live. They are delight for him. This type of response towards the law is only possible because God himself, the lawgiver himself, is a good and gracious God. See, ultimately what we're not trying to do with the Ten Commandments is trying to say, you need to beat these things into your head. You need to figure them out. You need to pull it together. It's about time. Rather, what we want to do with the Ten Commandments is, is show you is what, is what God intended them to do is to reveal his holy nature. Simultaneously showing us our inability to live up to his holiness. And as a result, our desperate need for him and his grace. And that what we see is that as we recognize that need within us, God doesn't disappoint us. He provides for us a way. And it is out of that grace and that mercy that, that we delight in his law. Third, what is the catalyst? I might be getting ahead of myself just a tad, but this is an exciting topic. What's the catalyst? What is it that compels us to obey his law? Because at just a casual reading of the, first of the Ten Commandments, if you're human, which I think everybody in here is, then as you read that, there will be parts of you that you will recognize inside that will kick against his law and his rules. There's parts of our culture that kicks against these rules. And so it makes sense for us. It's not natural for us to want to follow them. So what is it that compels us to want to be people who see the Ten Commandments as words to live by? What's the catalyst? Verse 6 is an amazing verse. And it serves for us as a reminder of ultimately what compels us to live a life in conformity with his word and obedience to his word. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the, before he gives them these 10 words to live by, what does God do? He reminds them of two things. First, who he is. I am the Lord your God. Secondly, he reminds them of what he has done. I am the Lord your God. 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is a majestic verse. The opening chord of the Ten Commandments here in verse 6. The foundation, notice, is in the indicative, not in the imperative mood. This is at the foundation, the, the preamble, what leads into the Ten Commandments is in the indicative, not in the imperative. Which tell us ultimately the basis of our obedience to the law is bound up in one, who God is, and two, what God has done. What compels us to live a life of obedience to God's word? Answer, who God is, what God has done. This is so crucial for us and often overlooked today. Some, someone has, has maybe been around, if you've been around uh, Christianity for long, it's very possible that you have misunderstood this crucial concept. Perhaps you, you've seen your obedience to God's law as a means by which you earn his favor. Verse 6 keeps us from doing that, among many other verses in the Bible. The commandments are not given to Israel so that they could earn salvation by keeping them, but rather they were given as a means by which they were to live in light of how God had already redeemed them. This is what God has done. Notice who God is. I am the Lord your God. In verse 34, chapter 34, uh, verse 6, chapter 34 of Exodus, sorry. God reveals and describes himself to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This covenant-keeping God that we serve that speaks to us describes himself as a merciful, gracious God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is just who he is. He's a gracious God. He's a loving God. He's a good God. And as a result, we should want to serve him. He wants what's best for us. He, he doesn't leave us fumbling our way through the dark. He tells us clearly and directly. And then he provides for us along the way constantly. Because this is who he is. The response for us should be that we want to please him. We want to make him happy. This is who he is. Secondly, what has he had done? Notice that the law comes after grace. This is a, a principle that is so crucial for us to understand as people of this book, as followers of Jesus. The law comes after grace. God did not come to his people in Egypt and say, listen, I've got these 10 commandments, okay? Here's the deal. If you keep these 10 commandments, then I will let you go from the land of slavery. The hand of Pharaoh, I'll open it up and you will go on your way. But first, you must keep these 10 commandments. That's not how he delivered them from Egypt. How did God deliver them from Egypt? I'm glad you asked. This is what he did. He says, I heard your cry. The end of Exodus chapter 2, he says, I saw my people and I knew them. He saw them in their need, in their misery, in their absolute anguish, in their pain, in their bondage and oppression. He simply heard their cry. He saw them and then God showed up and delivered them from it. Grace came before the law. Redemption came before the law. God saw them and delivered them. These Ten Commandments are not ten rules to get people out of Egypt. 
They're, they're 10 words for a free people who want to live a free life that God had intended them to live. God first saved, rescued, redeemed. Then the law was given as a result of that salvation. They're given to help us to continue to live the life that God has designed and intended for us. That's why they're so crucial. And not just is that true for them, not just does law follow grace in the Old Testament, but that's also the gospel rhythm that we see throughout all of scriptures. It's what we see ultimately in Jesus. God revealed to Israel in the Old Testament this rhythm, and he also maintains it for us in the New Testament with the new covenant people. Just like God brought Israel out of slavery, Colossians chapter one, verses, verse 13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us. Notice the past tense. This is all stuff that God has done through Christ for us, you and me, his people. He has, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is what he has done. This is what he offers to us in and through Christ. Deliverance from darkness. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not the result of your own doing, but it's the gift of God. Our God is gracious to us and he has demonstrated his grace to us in Jesus. And so that as we come to him, Jesus, the one who was able to fully trust God, who was completely able to, to obey the law in a way that you and I simply can't do, he himself says he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he does that for you and me so that we can have life in the promised land with God forever. Guys, our God is a great and mighty God and he has shown us his grace time and time again and we ultimately see it as we look at Jesus himself. The one mediator. Here in this passage we see Moses' picture of sort of Moses standing between God and his people. But what we know about Jesus, what 1 Timothy tells us is that for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Our way to the promised land, our way to eternity is ultimately found in the one full true keeper of the law, Jesus himself. His obedience to it and his death on the cross for our sake. If you're here this morning and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is what he offers you. To be a covenant people, he, he offers to covenant with you, a relationship with you where you get to hear from him, where he gets to provide for you, where he, he calls and changes and redirects your life so that it, it looks more and more like his, the way that your, our lives ought to look, we're designed to look. It's an offer of grace and mercy that he extends freely to all of us. And the only, the only thing we have to do, just like the, in Egypt, the Israelites called out to God, and he heard their cry. It's, it's ultimately all he requests of you. To recognize your need. To ask for his help. And then he supplies full and eternal life. It's amazing. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've, you've been saved to a special relationship with God and with others. And while Christianity is about a relationship, it's also about rules. He, he gives us these rules to shape the way that we relate to God 
and the way that we relate to each other. And as we study through the Ten Commandments, what you'll see is you'll see really the first five commandments have to do with just that, helping us understand how God wants to cultivate a relationship, what a right relationship looks like between us and him. And then when you look at the the next five commandments, what you'll see specifically is the horizontal relationship, how he gives us these rules on how we can relate to one another. And ultimately he does this. Why? Because God knows what's best for us and he wants what's best for us. As he Moses stands at the shore of the Jordan and, and instructs these people. What he's doing is trying to prepare them for life in the promised land. How ought they live? And as we sit here some 3,000 years later, God does the exact same thing for us. He provides words to us. And what are we supposed to do with those words? Live by them. And what we will see is that When we do that, it is absolutely, completely worth it. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it will always be worth it. So love and obedience are the proper response to God's grace. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. I think oftentimes in the church we can separate out obedience and say it's all about grace. It's all about grace. It is. And the response to God's grace is to obey his word. So let's be a people that do that, that recognize who God is, what God has done for us, and give ourselves to obeying his word. Over the course of the next couple of weeks as we walk through these Ten Commandments, let's see them as they are words to live by. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. As we just consider the reality, Lord, that you are a God who speaks to us, Lord, we recognize that you speak to us even today, still today. Lord, my prayer is simple, that you would help us to continue to be, to strive to be a people who are constantly listening for your word. Help us to be a people who are conformed and who are changed by your word. And help us to be a people who know it. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, before we continue on in worship and song, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so if you have the elements, um, you can go ahead and take them out if you need some. Um, Ned has a tray in the back and he'll just put your hand up and he'll come around and get you some elements. Um, just a couple of words before we read the scripture. First is, as we reflect on God's grace and all that he's done for us in Christ, one of the ways that we do that corporately as a people, one of the ways that we remember what God has done for us and celebrate it is through the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of God's grace to us in Christ. We consider all that he's done for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. How he gives us life, how he forgives our sins, and invites us into his family. When we take out this cup and this cracker, we remember how awesome God is in Christ. Secondly, we also remember that Jesus commanded us to do this. So we see grace in these elements, 
but we also are practicing obedience. See how this works? Grace before obedience. Grace comes to us in Christ, and Christ says, take these elements and do them. Celebrate what I've done for you regularly when you meet. And so, this is for, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and 26. You can take out the, the bread and get it ready. <clears throat> for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, this is Christ's body given for us. Let's take and eat. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, this is, cup represents the blood of Christ that has been shed for us. Let's take now and drink it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for all that you are and for all that you have done. Lord, as we consider how you have graciously provided for us eternal life in and through Christ, help us to be a people who never forget, who never forget the grace that you have poured out on us, that you have extended to us. Help us to be a people who are constantly living our lives, every area of our life in response to your wonderful grace and mercy and your clear direction through your word. We love you and we ask these things in your mighty name. Amen.